If you would, open up your Bibles to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to be in verses 1 through 30 tonight. Jake is going to be preaching 31 to 39 next week. I want to really encourage you all to, to be here for that. It'll be Jake's last large group. Um, you know, for two and a half years, which is not a very long time, but for two and a half years... Whenever the last song is playing right before I get up to preach, every single time I'm typically standing back there and when I'm, what I'm thinking the last song is, Lord, the students who are here need a real word. There's enough TED Talks out there. There's enough gurus out there. There's enough Christians trying to give advice. They need a real word. My first sermon to y'all was 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2. And the whole point there is what Paul was saying is that I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And I said at the beginning that that was going to be the theme of where we were going to go from there. That's what we were going to saturate everything in. I do think that by God's grace, though I've not done everything right, and though I've sinned against y'all in many ways, but my conscience is clear that I do think that we've done our best to proclaim that message. And it's awesome to think that Romans 8, of all chapters, would be the last one for me as the RUF campus minister here. Few chapters in all Scripture get better than this. And I'm just, I'm just going to be honest with you all. I'm going to go for it tonight. Uh, I'm, just, I'm just, you know, it's my last one. And uh, you can only say so much. And as was mentioned earlier, uh, time is short. Um, I don't want you to hear from me. I want you to hear from the Word. And I want you to really hear from the Word. And the whole reason is because I love you. Uh, you don't get to do this much. And uh, I think this is one of the best chapters out there. So, Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 30. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact, the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit of, is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, 
He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we await for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And and he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Lord God, I'm asking that you please remember me. and Please strengthen me only this once, only this once more. Would you help me to preach to this group one last time in order to help them slay the enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil? Would you rain down upon us the blessings and benefits of the Holy Spirit during this time? And we ask all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. A boy once described how an elevator worked. And he described it in this way. He said, when I went into this little bitty room, the doors closed. 
And then when it opened, the upstairs had come down to me. Isn't that a funny way of thinking about it? The upstairs had come down to me. That's actually a great illustration of what happens when you become a believer. Is that when you get in Jesus Christ, heaven and the benefits of heaven come down to you. The upstairs, as it were, comes down to us. So far, what we've been talking about in the book of Romans is how Christ and Christ alone, as Colin mentioned earlier, he has accomplished our redemption. He's not asking for anything else. The only qualification, the the, the only condition is this, just believe him. But it does kind of raise the question, if he accomplished our salvation, how how are we going to get it? How are we going to get those benefits if it's in him? This is what this chapter is all about. It's all about showing us what we have in Christ. And, and not just what we have that maybe we can lose it, but what we have, and thinking about last week, what we have even when Romans 7 is true, right? You see, how do we get these benefits? How do we get these blessings? It's by getting the Holy Spirit. In John 14, verses 23 and 26, and then again in John 15, verse 26, it says, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him. And listen to this. And we, talking about the Father and the Son, we will come to him and make our home with him, with the believer. How in the world does that happen? Jesus says this. But the helper... The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. In other words, as the Holy Spirit comes to us, that's how God makes his home in us. Again, Jesus says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, when he comes, I will send to you from the Father the Spirit of truth. How do we get the benefits? You get the Holy Spirit. Unless the Spirit of Christ comes to you, you can't get the benefits. But if you get the Spirit, the upstairs has come down to you. Amen? Amen. What is Romans 8 all about? Remember last week when we looked at Romans 7, we were talking about how the reality is that even though we want to follow Christ, the Christian still sins. But that does not mess up God's plan for us. It cannot, because God is all-powerful. Jesus has secured us. And Romans 8 is all about this, and Jake will hit on this next week. It's this. No matter how bad your sin is, no matter how bad your suffering is, Jesus will keep you. Amen? Amen? He will keep you, and He will bring you all the way home. If you have the Spirit... You will make it all the way to the end. Amen? What we're going to see here tonight is this. The Holy Spirit gives us life. The Holy Spirit grants us adoption. And the Holy Spirit guarantees us glory. In those three things, there are a number of blessings of how we see the blessings of the upstairs, as it were. The blessings of heaven, how they come down to us. 
Go back to verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The Holy Spirit is seen here in verses 1 through 13 as being the spirit of life. He gives us life. Well, how does he give it? He gives it to us in a number of blessings. Here's blessing number one. The Holy Spirit gives us life judicially. Talking about in the courtroom setting. The Holy Spirit gives us life judicially. You see that in verses 1 through 4. Particularly here when it says that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Verse 2. For, so how is it possible that we don't have any condemnation? The law of the Spirit of life has set you free. So if you have the Spirit, you are not condemned. But notice what it says at the end of verse 3. Look at the end of verse 3. Jesus condemned sin in the flesh. If you're a believer, here's what this means. If you're a believer, you are not condemned and you will never be condemned no matter what happens in your life. Sin is condemned. Your sin that was transferred to Jesus, that's condemned. But now you, as you wear the righteousness of Christ, you cannot be condemned. Amen? That is an amazing blessing. No matter how bad the Romans 7 struggle is, there is no condemnation for you. No matter what others might say about you, no matter what you tell yourself, no matter anything, Romans 8 is always true of the believer. Amen? Amen. Try to tell me what sin is possibly greater than the grace of Jesus. Like, try, try to reason with me if there's anything in your life or anything of the what-if land, as I like to call it. We always think about the what-if land, but by the way, nothing good ever happens when we think about what-if land. But even if the what-if were to happen, could any of that possibly compare to how righteous the righteousness of Christ is for you? No. I love what... One basically old dead guy, Samuel Bolton, he said this, If Christ has taken whatever our sins deserved, and by doing so, if he satisfied God's justice to the full, then God cannot, if he's just, he cannot punish us for sin. For that would require the full payment from Christ and also demand from us. It's impossible. It's either all of Jesus or all of you. There is no halfway. Well, what, what we need to really make sure here is that there, will be, there are worldviews being promoted here. There are ideologies and theories being promoted in our world right now that even some Christians are trying to adopt. And all it is is heaping up condemnation on people. That's all it's doing. We can't let anything take away the grace of the gospel you can't just let the grace of the gospel be something that you only keep within the church doors the gospel of grace grips everything in life and god calls everyone to repent and to believe that don't let anything don't let anyone try to say that if you're a believer you're still in condemnation unless you do x y and z because the truth is that jesus took your condemnation it's what it says in Mark 14, verse 64. 
It says they all condemned him to death when he was on trial. And that's what happened on the cross. The father in his infinite standard. And I want you to think about this. No matter how bad any atrocity has been in your life, this country, or the history of the world, no matter how bad it might be, the Father so poured out His wrath on His Son that anyone who may have even caused that very same atrocity, they don't have to do anything else to be saved except believe in Jesus Christ. Now that's scandalous. But that's what happened on the cross is that the wrath of God was so poured out on Jesus where the father says, that's enough for me. So my friends, can I ask you this? Is that going to be enough for you? The first blessing that has come downstairs to us is that there's no more condemnation. Here's the second blessing, verses 5 through 8. The Holy Spirit, he gives us life judicially. He also gives us life intellectually. You see this? As it talks about how setting your mind on the things of the spirit. The mind is talking a lot about our thought life and our desires. Here's what it's not saying. It's not saying that you're going to have perfect thought life or perfect desires when you become a believer. We just saw that in Romans 7, right? But slowly but surely, you will grow in having a different thought life. In having different desires. Matter of fact, what tends to happen for the believer is this. When, when, when you first become a believer, we, what we often do is we often love to say, well, can I do this? And is this sinful? You know, what, can, what can I do and what can't I do? I just want to make sure I avoid sin. We kind of only look at the Christian life as the negative. We just want to avoid what bad things are and what bad people do. Here's how you know you're growing in Christian maturity. is that instead of only asking that, you begin to ask more of positively, what can I fill my mind with what's most beautiful? And it's really this, with who is most beautiful? It's like what Philippians 4.8 says, talking about Paul saying, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever is pure, lovely, if anything's worthy of praise or excellence, think about these things. The blessing of the Holy Spirit means that he grants you a new thought life. He grants you new desires. And I think you got to see this on the senior panel. And I've been able to see y'all grow for two and a half years of how you've grown and just desiring to think more about Jesus. You see, living a life that is led by the Holy Spirit is never separated from focusing on Jesus. As if the things of the Holy Spirit are somehow different than focusing on Him. Jesus Himself says in John 15, 26, He says, The Spirit will witness about Me. In John 16, 13-14, Jesus is saying, The Holy Spirit will glorify Me. The Spirit is like a spotlight. Your eyes look where the spotlight shines. You don't just stare at the spotlight. The Holy Spirit loves it when you continually think about the beauty and majesty of Jesus. I love what John Newton says in a, a letter he's writing to someone. He says this, the best advice I can send to you or the best wish I can uh, form for you is that you may have an abiding and experimental sense of these words of the apostle, these words, 
looking unto Jesus. The duty, the privilege, the safety, the unspeakable happiness of a believer is all comprised in that one phrase. My friends, let me ask you this. Do you see a growing desire in your heart to look at Jesus? Or are you more obsessed with yourself and your self-righteousness? Because the honest truth is this. That there are many of us who can say we're Christians, but we're really more obsessed with people thinking about us as being Christians rather than looking at Christ. And the Christian learns to turn outward from oneself to behold the glory of Christ. That's what the Spirit does. What I would want to see this group be going forward is a group that is continually obsessed with Christ. Just like what Jesus, his mindset was for the Father. In John 4.34, he said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me. That's what Jesus feasted on. It's kind of the thing of like, what do you get up and what, what, what gets you up out of bed? The Christian is learning more and more. It's this. I just want to see him. Because there's no one like him. That's one of the blessings from upstairs that's come to us. The Holy Spirit gives us life judicially. He gives us life uh, intellectually, as it were. He also gives us life bodily. Look at verses 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Look at verse 11. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The Holy Spirit, as He raised Christ from the dead, or really as the Father raised Christ from the dead by the Spirit, so he will do the same thing to us. But I love this. Look at, look at, at the end of this first sentence in verse 9. Look at it. There's that word that says dwells. You know what's really cool about this word? It's, a, it's the word that means to make someone's home. It's a word that's very closely related to saying God's temple. Meaning this. One of the blessings of the Holy Spirit is that now you become the temple of God. Is that not amazing? Paul will say this elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 6.15. Actually, let me remind you, when Paul is going to say this truth in 1 Corinthians 6, he's talking about how you should flee from sexual immorality. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Paul's talking about in, in 1 Corinthians 6, he's going to say, do you not know that your body is a temple? I think it's worth saying here is that one of the blessings of the Christian is learning to repent of your lust, to repent of the secret sins that you're hoping no one would confront you on. But rather, we're to live like we will be resurrected because we will. You see, this, this is a promise here that sin will not be the chief power in our life. There's this process here that Paul's saying is, as you fix your minds upon Jesus, 
you will grow. You'll learn to repent. Love what Dane Ortland says. Everything that we experience of God is the working of the Holy Spirit. Because of the Holy Spirit, you can grow. You really can. Those feelings of futility, the sense of impossibility, and the settled resignation that you have that you've plateaued permanently in the Christian life, those are not from heaven, but from hell. The idea that the Christian would dare to say, and sometimes we do, we say, well, this is just who I am. I am my sin. I can't grow. This is too too strong for me. That's not the reality of the Christian. Amen? I know that's hard to believe. But the reality of Scripture is true that if you are a believer, you can fight against your sin and you will fight against your sin. You see, because Jesus rose from the dead, you also have risen from the dead spiritually. And now you can fight. The blessings from upstairs have come down to those who believe in Jesus. Look at verse 12 through 13. Here's blessing number four, talking about the Spirit gives us life. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, You'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. The Holy Spirit, He gives us life judicially, He gives us life intellectually, He gives us life bodily. And this is kind of a weird one, but the Holy Spirit gives us life violently, He gives us life to fight. Don't ever mistake this. The Christian life is not easy. Don't listen to any other prosperity gospel that's out there saying, if you just believe, then God will give you health, wealth, and happiness. The Christian life is a fight. And actually, one of the ways in which you know you're a Christian is by staying in the fight. It's not by saying, well, if you keep getting knocked down, you must not be a believer. No, no, no. Are you still in the fight? You should have confidence. Paul is telling us here, God's telling us here is this. Don't act like you're in debt to living out sin. Don't act like you're still enslaved by your old self. But now you have the power to begin killing sin. I love what John Owen says. He uses the word mortify, which means to kill. He says... Do you mortify sin? By the way, when he is quoting this, he's speaking to middle school boys. Do you mortify sin? Do you make it your daily work? You must always be at it while you live. Do not take a day off from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. I'm going to be very honest here. Some of us are living like we're enslaved to sin. We feel like we have to get drunk. We have to hook up with others. We have to watch porn. We can't fight against it because that urge is there. We, we have to follow the world and be worldly. 
We have to embrace the world's way of seeing life. We have to stay bitter towards people. We have to smoke weed. We have to dress in such a way to get looks from people. We have to be funny by telling those crude jokes. We have to keep up with entertainment so that we watch the shows that are basically pornography. We feel like we have to follow the same-sex attraction desires. We feel like we have to gossip so that people know that, uh, that the people we're gossiping about are worse than us. We have to idolize money. We have to send revealing pictures in order to keep that person interested in us. We have to keep going to those websites that make me covet what others have. So many of us are living like, this is just, I have to do this. But that's not who you are. If you're a believer, that's not who you are. Amen? Amen. The Spirit is in you. The Holy Spirit is in you. You have the power to kill sin. Don't let sin be in your life saying, this is fine. It's kind of like the meme with the cartoon dog when everything's burning around and he's sitting there like, this is fine. I wish I, this is what I wish I would have told young Wilson. It's a quote from John Owen. Every time sin rises to tempt us, it always seeks to express itself in the extreme. Every unclean thought or every unclean glance Let's think about that on college campuses. It would be adultery if it could. Every covetous desire would be oppression if it could. And every unbelieving thought would be atheism. It is like the grave that is never satisfied. Dane Ortland says we feed sin by coddling it, by pining after it, by daydreaming about it, by giving vent to it. I just, I got to ask myself this too. But how do, how do we expect to fight sin when we continually look at our phone and the social media feed or web browser is constantly filled with those things? How, how, how can we expect to fight sin when the TV shows we're constantly watching, even if we say we might fast forward through those scenes, but for real, do we really? But then also you know that you're still watching this show and you know what it's about? How how do we expect to fight sin because the music we listen to is just constantly promoting those ideas? Or the people we're hanging around are constantly saying, this is fun, you should do this. Or the books that we read or the podcasts we listen to or the thoughts we entertain. Sin, it's so clear here, brothers and sisters. Sin seeks to kill you. Sin is like a crouching tiger that likes to look small so that its prey does not feel threatened by it. And when you're in the right position, it will pounce on you. And it kills my heart to see how some of us are living. It kills my heart to see. If I could have just told young Wilson, fight Because sin will seek to destroy you. It's not a game. It's not one of those things that says you can just do this and have fun. And then later in life when you get married and have kids, you can just mature and get your life together. Satan wants your soul now. Jesus 
is also pleading with you saying, I'll take you now with everything you are and I'll help you fight. How do we suffocate sin? How do we actually try to kill it? It's by redirecting our gaze to Christ. How do we do that? It's through the word. I love what our senior panel was saying earlier about just like Mattia was saying, if you, if you want to be fed, then feed. Feed on the word. I love it when God tells Ezekiel, you know, eat this scroll. And he eats the scroll talking about the word. And it's just this kind of weird, crazy picture of saying, feast on this. Nothing else shows you the gospel of grace in the world like this. Amen? The promise is that by the Holy Spirit, you can fight against sin. And the promise is that no matter how true Romans 7 is, you can fight against sin, you will fight against sin, and one day you will finally enter into the eternal victory. One day, it'll be no more. That's what you can have if you believe Jesus. The blessings from the upstairs coming down to you. At first sections a little bit longer. These next sections are shorter. The Holy Spirit grants us or gives us life. The second section is the Holy Spirit grants us adoption. Look at verses 14 to 17. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. For you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Holy Spirit grants us life, but he also grants us adoption. This fifth blessing is particular thing about adoption, but how he grants us adoption intimately. Paul's saying here, don't be led by your sinful flesh or by the world's sinful ways. This word for led is the picture of a sheep following the shepherd. Who are you following? Who are you? You might be saying that I'm a sheep that belongs to this field, but the question is this who are you actually following? Because those who are led by the Holy Spirit, they're learning to follow the Spirit. Here's what's interesting in the context here it's not this following that's like, this is really easy. It's a following into war. When it says that, We did not receive, as God's children, we we didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That word for fear gives the picture in the Greek of panic that makes someone flee from an overwhelming enemy. It's actually the picture of war. In other words, this is what Paul's trying to tell us as believers. Don't think that sin is more powerful than the Holy Spirit. Don't fall into fear thinking that even though you might really struggle with sin still, don't fall back into fear thinking it's going to ruin my whole life and this is just the way things are. God can't work in me. That's not the reality for you, right? See, sin wants you to think that you'll lose your status of being loved by God and lose your status of being a child of God when you sin. Isn't that often the thoughts that come into our minds of thinking, now that I've done this, God doesn't love me anymore. Or now I'm, you know, I was a starter on the varsity team, and now I'm sitting the bench on the JV team. That's what sin loves to make us think. It makes us 
think that it's too powerful to fight against. But the reality is that the children of God, if you're united to Jesus Christ, what did Jesus say in Matthew 28? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I want you to think about this. If you are united to Jesus Christ who has all authority, then sin, the de- uh, death, the devil, and the world do not have authority over you. Amen? Amen? Jesus does. And he gives life. You are his child. How do you know? This is kind of weird, but it's actually when we see that word cry. We receive the spirit of adoptions, uh, the, the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry. This, this word is not kind of like a sweet cry, but it's, it's a loud cry with deep emotion. It's actually the, the same as Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane in Mark 14. In other words, this, it, it's not a comfortable situation when you're reminded that you're a child of God. Isn't that just kind of crazy? What does this mean? Here's what it means. It means that if you're a believer, take courage that even when sin threatens you most, when sin makes you feel most guilty, most unworthy, most dirty, whatever it might be, the longings that you feel when you're saying, God, would you please help me? God, would you please show me that you love me? Is there any forgiveness? That longing, that tug in your heart to want God, that's a good sign. It's actually in that very moment where you say, I just wish I knew that Jesus loved me. It's actually proof that Jesus loves you. Amen? That's just crazy. It's actually in that very state when you just have this anxiety-ridden fear of condemnation, when you feel like you're powerless over your sin or you're hopeless to change, or when you feel like God's going to bring His vengeance down on you to really get you right. That's not from the Holy Spirit. That's from the devil and sin itself. The longing that you have of saying, I just wish I knew I was forgiven is actually the proof that in Christ you are forgiven and you are cleansed. Amen? The Christian life is weird, isn't it? See, because on the cross when Jesus cried, instead of saying, Abba, Abba on the cross, He cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because of that That we never have to if you're a believer. That we can always cry, Abba, Father. The blessings from the upstairs have come down to those who believe in Jesus. That's blessing number five. Blessing number six. The Holy Spirit grants us adoption securely. Look at verse 17. And if children love this, then heirs. Heirs of God. And fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may be also glorified with him. The Holy Spirit, he secures us and he helps us as we endure till the end. Paul is telling us here, you have to think about yourself rightly. If you're a child of God, you're an heir. Now, here's one of the things that we need to be reminded in Scripture. Men and women... 
can be saved, right? That's a very rhetorical question. But why does the Bible call men and women sons of God? Is the Bible sexist? That's what some people would say. The Bible just prefers men. No, you've got to read Paul in his context. Who, in the Old Testament age, who would receive all the inheritance from the Father? Who would receive all the land, all the property, all the riches? Who would receive it? The firstborn son. Why does it say that not only men, but also women who believe in Jesus Christ, that you are all sons of God? It's saying this. You will receive the inheritance that Christ himself has earned. Amen? Amen. Yes, you can say you're a daughter of God. Yes. But it's showing you here that you could not possibly imagine being in a closer relationship with God. It's impossible. You could not be closer. It's actually because the Son of God came down to earth to save us that we, as, as one author says, we're sons in the Son. In other words, no matter how bad of sin might be in your life, no matter how late in life you might believe in Jesus, the thief on the cross, he believed in Jesus maybe only for a moment of minutes or hours or whatever it might be, and then he went into heaven and he received everything. Isn't that amazing? Now, we don't like that because that doesn't sound fair. Why didn't he have to do the things that we had to do? It's all by God's grace. But brothers and sisters, you are in air. You could not possibly receive more in life. See, Jesus has earned for us everything. What does that mean? It means this. The entire creation will be ours. Stillwater We'll get to this point in a second. Stillwater will be yours. Mars. What is it? The I forget. The Stevenson 19 or whatever that gigantic star is. It will be yours if you're a believer. Because if you're a Christian, when you get to heaven, what is Christ, which is going to be all creation, is now yours. Is that not amazing? I think sometimes we just, we're like, no, we're just going to get to heaven and kind of float in this like, ethereal fishbowl and just be like little heart babies and be like, "Ah," you know, like Paul is telling us you're a son of God. And yes, you're going to have like the son of God did. You're going to have to go through pain before you get gain. But the gain will be so much better because you're an adopted son of God. What's going to come is amazing. That actually is what leads to our next point, is that the Holy Spirit guarantees us glory. Look at verse 18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Here's blessing number seven. The Holy Spirit guarantees us glory through patient suffering. I want to ask us a very honest question here. Chad Scruggs, who's a senior pastor of Covenant Presbyterian in Nashville, whose daughter Hallie Scruggs was murdered a couple weeks ago. What do you think verse 18 might mean to him? Is the Bible being trivial here about our sufferings to say it's not that big of a deal, rub some dirt on it, it'll be fine? 
Guys, the pain is real. And I'm telling you, as you get older, you will see friends get divorced. You'll see people have miscarriages or just their children die. You'll see people have stillbirths. You'll see war. You'll see people commit her, her, you know, just heinous crimes. You'll see, unfortunately, you'll see people commit suicide, have addictions, all these different things. Life is hard. I've had teammates and friends kill themselves. This life is not easy. You might be in the midst of very intense depression, anxiety, or whatever it might be. It's not easy. And the Bible knows that. And it's saying that as bad as it is, heaven's so much greater. Amen. Come on now. Come on now. Come on. Get me going, Noah. I did this earlier with Jake. This is kind of a silly illustration, but I literally had Jake uh, come with me. And we opened up the doors to the sanctuary here. And we stood at the very edge. And I had a rubber band. And I pulled back the rubber band. And I had Jake measure how much of like, the, the pull, the stretchy part was. I pulled it back and then I shot it to see how far it went. Because the thing about a rubber band is this. When you pull it backwards and then when you shoot it forwards, it goes much more forward than you can stretch it backwards. Matter of fact, let me nerd out with you for, for a second. I pulled it back six inches and it went like 149 inches forward. 24 times more forward than it was pulled backwards. Life often feels like the rubber band whenever you're being pulled backwards and it's stretching and it's hard and it's tense and you think there's no way I can make it through this. Can we be honest for a second and stop just trying to have a social media filter where everything is awesome, Lego song? Because it's not. But no matter how hard this life gets, heaven is far greater than 24 times more. Amen? There is nothing so atrocious that can happen in your life that will not be infinitely greater in the future. That's what Paul means when he says it's not even worth comparing. It's not saying life right now is not hard. Paul went through some stuff. But he knows heaven's better. You see, Paul is actually telling us here is that creation will be freed from the curse when the last day reveals that we're the children of God. Now follow me here. Paul's saying, look, the last day, that's the judgment day. Jesus says in Matthew 25 that he will separate the sheep from the goats. The sheep being God's children, the goats being those whom he left in their sins. And when the sheep, who are the sons of God, the children of God, right? On the last day of the judgment day, when it's revealed that they are God's children all by grace. Do you want to know what happens? Creation, this creation is transformed. We actually don't go somewhere else. It comes here. This very earth will be transformed. And as we mentioned earlier about how our bodies are temples, this is what's crazy to think about. In the temple was the Holy of Holies where God's special presence was. Now we, as wild as this is, we're the temples of God. You want to know what happens on that last day? 
The holy of holies that is in us will burst forth into all creation and will eradicate all sin and suffering. Amen? Just as when Adam in the very beginning, when he sinned and from him it cursed all creation, now at the last day when we are revealed to be the ones who God had mercy on, the holy of holies, God's presence will burst forth from us into all creation. And everything will be yours. That's amazing. To think that one day, I want to really get personal here. That those of us in here who are believers or who will eventually be a believer in this lifetime, we're going to be together. And we're going to be celebrating and we'll turn from not being huggers to huggers. Right, Matia? And to think, of, to think of the peaceful feeling that now no more my sin. It's not even present in my life. There's no more. There's no more pain. There's no more suffering. It's all glory because we see Him. Don't you want that? It's all because of Him. And that's what we get when we patiently endure. Because on the other side of suffering, suffering is essentially, it's like these two doors that if you're going to get into the lobby, you've got to go through these doors. The doors are suffering. They're thin, but man, you have a whole lobby. You have all of heaven ahead of you. Keep being patient. Here's the last blessing. The Holy Spirit guarantees us glory through prayerful confidence. The whole point Paul's been making here in these several chapters is that Our suffering and our sin can never separate us from the love of God. But it often wants us to think that it can. It's interesting, the Cleveland Clinic, they say that we have anywhere from 50,000 to 70,000 thoughts in a day. You want to know what percentage of those thoughts are considered to be negative? 80 of them. 80 of those thoughts, you're just on a sin hunt with yourself. What do you think about Romans 8.28? Look at that. And we know that for those who love God, half of it works together for good. Right? Let's be realistic here. Some of it works together. Let's not get ahead of ourselves, right? That's what it says. All things. All things work together for good. And that word all in Greek means all. Amen? All things work together for good. The worst sin and the worst suffering in your life, God knows how to reverse the curse. And my friends, that means that there's nothing in your life that can separate you from His purpose. And that's what it says right here about being foreknown and predestined and called and justified and glorified. I'm just going to give it to you straight. Calvinism is in the Bible. You can't get around those words. They're there and they mean what they say in the Greek. And when it says foreknow, it does not mean this, that God looked through the tunnel of time to see what you would do. There's three wrong answers, or three answers for why that'd be wrong. One, if God looked into the future to see what you would do, if he was going to look into the future to see, well, I'm going to save those who have faith, God's responding to you and giving you what you deserve. That's not grace. Second reason why that's wrong. Were God to look into the future and to see you, what would he see? He would only see your sin. 
When God, when it says he foreknew, it means that he chose to know you. He chose to embrace you. God stands outside of time. He is not bound by it. And when it says that he foreknew you, then he predestined you. The whole thing is this. You can never be separated from his love. This is not something that people who, who they say they're Calvinists and they just beat people over the head with it. That's not Calvinism. Do you know what Calvinism is? Calvinism is for people who are fresh out of jail and they have no hope at all. And maybe they have just the worst resume in their life. And they walk into this building and they hear about Jesus and they look to him and say, yes, he and he alone can save me. And God says, I will keep you all the way to the end. It means for those who feel like they can't make it. Who can't keep fighting. Who think that somehow because of this sin, because of this addiction I'm struggling with, that somehow God will let me go. The promise here is saying, I love you. And you're mine. Is anything too strong for God? God is saying that he will work all things in our life for his glory and our good, no matter how true Romans 7 is. It is just so crazy how we can look at people and we can say, mm, yeah, you're not a believer. Even when they do walk in here and they're a mess and they say, Jesus is all I got. How ridiculous of that. Because we do that. I've done that. God will save his people. And actually, if you really believe this text, it actually gets you to get off of your soapbox and stop thinking so highly of yourself. Because what's stopping me from being the person who shot up Covenant Nashville? What's stopping me from being the next Hitler? What's stopping me from being named your worst person out there? What's stopping you from doing that? God's grace. Because we have the same heart. And God saves wretches. Amen? And he keeps them. You do not persevere to the end by your own power. God doesn't look at you and say, I am so impressed with how well you've done this Christian life. Come on in. He does not say that. The reason why you persevere to the end is because he keeps you. It's all by his grace. And shouldn't that mean with all this That even when someone seems furthest off, but there's just a little bit of faith there, shouldn't we actually seek to stoke the fire rather than smush it? William Dyke became blind at the age of 10. Despite this, he was smart, witty, and handsome. In grad school, he met a woman, he got engaged. Shortly before the wedding, William Dyke submitted himself to some special treatment for the loss of his sight. and He so badly wanted to remove the bandages from the surgery during the wedding ceremony. He wanted the first thing he saw to be his wife's face. Can you imagine? As the bride came down the aisle, William's father started unwrapping the bandages around his eyes. They didn't know if the surgery was going to work. 
As the last part of the bandage came off, William Dyke successfully opened his eyes to look into the face of his new bride for the first time, and he said this, you are more beautiful than I ever imagined. My friends, if you believe in Jesus Christ, the blessings of heaven, you will say the same thing. You'll look at Jesus and you'll say, you're more beautiful than I imagined. Don't you want him? Because he wants you. And all you have to do is believe. I don't care how long I've preached because I'm just going to go for it. Because heaven and hell is real. And the glory of heaven is so much greater. And there's no one like Jesus. I don't care how far off someone might think they are. Jesus is enough for you. That's all I've tried to say for two and a half years. Let me pray. Father, for two and a half years we fought the good fight. And by your Holy Spirit, we ask that you would help us to finish the race and keep the faith. We've sought to proclaim to these, your sheep, the gospel of grace. And now, because of Jesus and by the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would seal these truths upon their hearts. That they may arrive safely to heaven, where we will all gather on that last day to celebrate with you, Lord. Would you grant us faith tonight? Would you do it all by your mercy? We ask all this in your name. Amen.